Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. I am really looking forward to speaking today with Dr. Lise Altschuler, who is our fellowship associate director, and she's also a leading expert on dietary supplements and natural products. And we're going to talk about adaptogens. Yeah, it's something that I think few people know about and is actually an incredibly useful tool for enhancing health and resiliency. Well, let's get to it. Dr. Lise Altschuler is a naturopathic doctor with board certification in naturopathic oncology. She's on our center faculty as the associate director of the fellowship in integrative medicine and is a professor of clinical medicine at the University of Arizona. She is co-author of Definitive Guide to Cancer, now in its third edition, and Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer. Lise has won many awards, including the 2014 American Association of Naturopathic Physicians Physician of the Year. Welcome, Lise. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I was excited to hear a little bit about your philosophy about adaptogens, which is the subject of our conversation today. You say that adaptogens work gently but persistently. They increase resilience, stamina, energy, mental and emotional well-being, and immunity. And nothing else can do what adaptogens do. They are truly special contributors to our health and wellness. Pretty amazing. I think uh, we have to start by asking you to define what are adaptogens and have people heard of them? Do they know of them? Well, you know, they've been around for a long time. The term adaptogen was coined by some researchers in Siberia and uh, this was back in the early 1900s, and it was really around this idea of how do we keep our, our workers healthier and more productive? Is there some kind of plant medicine that could enable that productivity? And that basically birthed a lot of research into plant medicines, and there was a group of plants discovered which later became known as adaptogens. And some of these are native to that area of the world. There are things like Siberian ginseng, for example, sometimes referred to as the mother of all adaptogens because it really was the first one that was studied in depth and led us to this whole category. So these are unique plants, but they're not new. They're unique because they have this ability to support people's health no matter where we are on that continuum of health. So they have kind of a balancing effect, or they bring people back to what we sometimes refer to as homeostasis, or a sense of balance, dynamic balance, which is very unusual, very unlike, say, we're tired and we drink a cup of coffee, that acts more as a stimulant, so it moves us in a very specific direction, whereas adaptogens don't necessarily do that, and we'll kind of get into the mechanisms, I'm sure, but they are unique. There are no medica no medications that do this. There are no vitamins that do this. There are no minerals that do this. There are no other supplements that do what adaptogens do. Lisa, I have to make a comment here. Yeah. Um, we can't say that adaptogens are plants because a big category of them is mushrooms, and mushrooms are not plants. Mm. And although the Chinese did not have the term adaptogen, they certainly had the idea. And their category of superior medicines, which included 
a panax ginseng and a lot of mushrooms uh, were considered to be superior because they work generally on the body to increase resistance to stress. So I think it was the same idea. But mushrooms are some of the most prominent ones there. So I would say natural products. Yeah, it's true. You know, mushrooms are this weird hybrid, sort of animal-like, plant-like. Not separate kingdom. The separate kingdom, right? And you're you're true. You know, cordyceps mushroom is one of my very favorite adaptogens. So absolutely good correction. And I wonder if there's anything in conventional medicine that you could consider an adaptogen. Over the years, I've heard people say, maybe we should think of aspirin as an adaptogen because of its wide-reaching effect, but I don't think it has that homeostatic effect. Which Also, is- Victoria, the, one of the main characteristics of adaptogens is it's non-toxic in long-term use. You can't say that about aspirin. And I think in general, any of the medications you come up with in Western medicine, the toxicity problem is... is rules them out. So this is one of the really wonderful parts of integrative medicine from my perspective, that it adds elements that just don't exist in conventional medicine. And as uh, you both pointed out, uh, certain plants and mushrooms uh, have this potential. You pointed out in your philosophy that these are good for stress, but it turns out adaptogens can also make us more resistant to infection. And uh, Andy, I'm just wondering if you want to speak about COVID-19. We're recording this during the pandemic. Are there any adaptogens that you see as potentially useful during this pandemic? Well, Lisa has written an article you know, on this subject. I think the ones that I would be most interested in are astragalus, probably also a number of the, the mushrooms that uh, you know we can talk about that, that uh, seem to enhance certain aspects of immunity. So Lise, talk about astragalus, because that's really a, an old one, as you were talking about, these are not new medicines. Right. So astragalus comes to us in the Western world from traditional Chinese medicine, and uh, we use the astragalus bark. So in traditional Chinese medicine, it's typically made into soups and consumed as a beverage. And that's very true for a lot of adaptogenic plants. If you look at their history of use, people consume these as part of their diet on a regular basis. And nowadays, we tend to extract the plants or the mushrooms and use them as supplements, which also works. But in the case of astragalus, astragalus is interesting in a couple of ways. Number one is that it uh, is thought to tonify our defensive chi. In, and I'm not a Chinese medicine practitioner, so forgive me for those of you who are listening who are, but it basically allows our system, our lungs especially, to be more resilient against infection. And we now know from further studies in Western medicine that there are very specific effects of astragalus extract on the immune system and it does two things which are uniquely important is for example with with the covid-19 pandemic in that the astragalus bark enhances our initial immune defenses against infection so it kind of upregulates our the immune cells that uh, attack invading microorganisms and at the same time it has some anti-inflammatory properties so it helps to control an immune response that would otherwise go on unregulated, which is where some of the complications from the SARS-CoV-2 virus comes into play. So it really is sort of perfectly suited, if you will, to COVID-19. And again, because of that that specificity in the lungs, it's really good, especially for people who have uh, weakness or maybe history of asthma or COPD or something like that. 
I imagine in your work as a naturopathic oncologist, you are using it as well in patients with cancer. Yes, there's a good body of data looking at astragalus in cancer. Again, you know, not so much to cure cancer, but really to support the immune system either during cancer treatment or as part of the recovery from cancer treatment, maybe has some cancer preventive properties. Again, I think that that's probably some of the wisdom behind the traditional use of eating it on a regular basis. And Andy, you have been making a recommendation to people with cancer to use astragalus for many, many years. What, what have you seen? Well, you know, this is a part of uh, something called Fujang therapy in Chinese medicine, which is a cancer supportive therapy designed especially to protect the bone marrow from damaging effects of radiation therapy and chemotherapy. So mostly I've seen very good results in, in marrow recovery, uh, people that have suppressed white cell production as a result of radiation or chemotherapy that astragalus seems to counteract that. Unfortunately, I have to tell many cancer patients, better not mention this to your oncologist because most conventional oncologists simply say, don't use any supplements or any herbs. They haven't learned about astragalus and they think they might interfere. But the fact is that, you know, most of the mushrooms that are used, astragalus, I think are quite safe and they don't interfere with conventional therapy. And Truthfully, this is one of the dietary supplements that has been studied. Yes. Uh, there is actually good trial evidence, uh, especially, I think, in lung cancer uh, for use of astragalus. Yeah, and, I, and again, I, I would echo uh, what Dr. Weil's saying in that, it, you know, this is, I would say, almost always true, which is that the therapies that we have from the natural materia medica are very useful as complementary therapies to conventional treatment. You know, the good news is that in my experience, more and more oncologists are open to the idea, especially if you can present them with the research or, you know, as a patient, you can ask your your natural or integrative provider to present some of the research to the oncologist. So the, the oncologist is mainly concerned that whatever you're adding into your treatment plan is not going to interfere with what they're recommending or in any other way harm you. So if you can make that case, then there's more openness now than there was 20, 30 years ago, for sure. True. The traditional use of astragalus in China is to ward off colds and flus. And there is data to support that. And I often recommend that the people at the start of winter cold and flu season or to people who say they get everything going around can be taken long-term, and I think it decreases risk of, of viral infection. Yeah, and I think the prevention piece is really key. There's, there's a little axiom that I learned from my TCM colleagues that it's really good to prevent, just as you said, but if you have an acute infection, you should stop taking it. The idea is that it sort of hardwires that infection in, or, and it makes it more difficult for the body to remove the infection. So I think that's generally a good rule of thumb. So astragalus, good for prevention, also good in recovery, but during the acute infectious process, better not to take it. Another thing that we're really wrestling with um, at this moment in time are the mental health effects of this pandemic. A lot of people are experiencing anxiety and depression. Is there a adaptogen or more than one adaptogen, a favorite that you would have to help people who are struggling with one or the other, anxiety or depression? There's, there are many. So let's look at anxiety first. I think, for, first of all, I, I have to say that when an herbalist uses an adaptogen, they often will combine 
an herb that's primarily an adaptogen with another herb or supplement that has what we call nerving properties. So in the case of anxiety, it would be unusual to treat that with just one herb. But that being said, you know, for the purposes of discussion, there are certainly some that come to mind. So for anxiety, one of the favorites is something called ashwagandha. Now, this comes to us from a different tradition of medicine, the Ayurvedic tradition of healing. This is also known as Withania somnifera, is the botanical name. And that second Latin name, somnifera, is the same word that gives us somnolence or sleep. So it kind of gives you a hint that it has some uh, sedative-like properties. It's not a sedative like we would think of if you were to take a sleep medication, for example, but it does take the edge off and kind of alleviate anxiety. So it's very good for anxiety. At the same time, um, ashwagandha is especially indicated for people who are very debilitated. So either debilitated by their anxiety or they're just debilitated from illness and they have anxiety as an element of that because it helps to restore and rebuild stamina at a very deep level. It encourages or it improves people's ability to utilize iron. And so it's good for anemia. It also improves white blood cell count. Uh, it has some very gentle thyroid supportive actions. So it, and that can contribute to fatigue and interestingly anxiety as well. It helps people get a good night's rest. Most adaptogens are typically uh, recommended in the morning that people take them in the morning when their energy should be highest because most adaptogens improve stamina and energy and well-being and not like coffee, but give you kind of a stronger sense of energy for the day. It can be a little stimulating. Some of them can, yes. But ashwagandha is the opposite of that. It has this, so it's unique in the world of adaptogens. It has this kind of sedative quality. So it's best taken either in the afternoon or in the evening, actually. Um, but so that's kind of one of my top ones for anxiety. Two for uh, possible uses in mental health. Uh, one is rhodiola and the other is Tulsi. Yeah, so <laughs> you and I are on the same wavelength today. So my next favorite I was going to say is Tulsi or holy basil, um, mostly because I like to say holy basil. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> holy basil is just an amazing, I, I find it to be an amazing adaptogen. It's very, it's, it has antiviral properties to, just in context of our earlier conversation, but it. I would use more, so it ha actually relieves anxiety, but it also relieves depression. So it has this, you know, ability to kind of address people with a mixed presentation of being somewhat depressed, but also having an overlying anxiety. Tulsi is very, very good at that and uh, combines well, actually, with ashwagandha in my experience. And if you look, there's a lot of Ayurvedic formulas that contain those two herbs, I think, for that reason. In that case, would you take it in the evening still because it's got the ashwagandha, or would you not be would it not be as important to dose it in the evening? Yeah, if I was using those together, I have a little more flexibility in my dosing. I would probably dose it in the afternoon uh, if I was using them together. I forgot, Andy. What was the other one you mentioned? Rhodiola. Rhodiola, right? So rhodiola is a good example of what Victoria said earlier, um, where some adaptogens can be stimulating. Rhodiola is, is very energy producing. Current research suggests that it probably actually works on what are called the mitochondria, little energy storehouses in our cell, basically, and improves our ability to make ATP or the currency of energy. So it can be very energizing, which is fantastic for people who 
are feeling low energy or have a more lethargic type of depression. But for some people with anxiety to begin with, if they take rhodiola, they can actually experience a slight worsening of their anxiety because it's a little bit too much too early. So that one, I, uh, I'm a little bit more um, cautious about in certain people. But for people who don't have that anxiety and who are just tired and kind of worn out, it's an amazing plant. I have to admit that I have used a variety of adaptogens uh, for my own health and well-being over the years. And uh, rhodiola made me feel wired. I, I didn't like it very much. I really like schizandra, which you haven't mentioned yet. And I think one of the reasons I like it is that, uh, Lise, when you teach about it, you say it turns a warrior into a warrior. <laughs> I love schizandra. I'm so glad that you love it too. Yeah, schizandra is that's the way I think of it. It really takes this kind of fretting type of anxiety and helps people regain a sense of control or what I call agency in their life so that they have a little bit more groundedness to move forward and to kind of meet their anxiety head on or utilize that the energy of anxiety in a productive way. Shasandra is also unique in that there are lignans in the plant which are very uh, hepatoprotective. So they actually are very good for supporting the liver in the context of environmental toxicity or uh, if somebody's consuming high amounts of alcohol or anything that could be otherwise inflammatory to the liver. Shisandra is very good at helping to support the liver. So that's just a nice kind of secondary benefit to Shisandra. So Andy, I want to pull a little bit on your um, ex expertise as an ethnobotanist. Uh, Lise mentioned to us a little bit about the discovery of these plants in Siberia. But what else do we know about the use of these plants from an ethnobotanical perspective? Well, first of all, the reason that people look for things in Siberia was that there was, uh, the, there was incentive of Soviet scientists to find substitutes for ginseng. Because uh, then, as long in history, the worldwide demand for ginseng has greatly exceeded the supply. And it's one of the most expensive herbs out there. So there was a, a project to try to discover alternatives, sources uh, that closer to home. And uh, explorers found this plant that looked like ginseng growing in Siberia. That's a ginseng relative. I think China is the most interesting place to look because, you know, I've, you've heard me say this, that Chinese medical philosophy divides drugs into inferior, middle, and superior categories. And the inferior category are drugs that have specific actions uh, for specific ailments. And that's, in Western medicine, that's our highest ideal of a drug, something that has a specific action. And the superior category, those that work generally, good for everything. And we don't take interest in them uh, in the Western world because we think if, somebody, if something works for everything, it can't work by a specific biochemical mechanism. So that really, I think, limited our search for these non-toxic substances that you know, bolster health and improve homeostasis. And, and it's remarkable, the history of ginseng is just fascinating how long it was completely ignored in the Western world. And, and we let our own uh, native form of ginseng, American ginseng, be harvested almost extinction uh, to be exported to China. And nobody bothered to study it to see what properties it had. It is fascinating how still so many people don't know what you're talking about when you say something is an adaptogen. It's not really in our lexicon. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. 
internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast. So Lise, tell us how these work. What's the mechanism? What is it doing to our physiology that has this wonderful normalizing function? So we are still learning about this. From what we know so far, it appears that adaptogens have many different mechanisms of action, which is one of the reasons why they have their fingers in so many different biochemical places. But one thing that we've long known about adaptogens is that they help to normalize our stress response, which uh, sometimes practitioners refer to as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So this is a neuroendocrine response system that we are hardwired to react to perceived stress in a way that allows us the capacity to move away from that stress. So if we see a tiger in the grass, our HPA or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis fires off and we get more blood flowing into our muscles. We shut down our digestive system and we're ready to run from the tiger. You know, in the modern world, we don't see tigers in the grass. Instead, we have people cutting us off in traffic. We run out of half and half for our coffee. We have all these other little mild stressors, but it triggers the same stress reaction. And over time, this stress reaction gets stuck in the on position, basically, and it doesn't turn off. So we don't kind of reestablish our homeostasis, our baseline function. And when that happens, we develop high levels of one of the stress hormones called cortisol. And with that, our cells in throughout our body become resistant to that cortisol. So instead of the normal physiology taking place, we get this kind of reverse response. And under this constant barrage of cortisol, we start to experience more inflammation. We start to, over decades, actually degrade the quality of our tissues. We can develop digestive issues, joint disorders, even cognitive issues, uh, mood disorders. So there's lots of ways in which chronic stress has a very clear physiology. And that's a very shortened version of complex concepts. But to uh, wrap that up, the adaptogens, one of the things that they do is that they reset the hypothalamus and the pituitary to the turnoff signal of cortisol. So it helps our body to turn that system off. So we were Let me say that the, the standard research model for determining whether a natural product has stress protective properties uh, or a drug is the rat swimming test. You drop a rat into a column of water and you see how long it swims until it gives up. And hopefully you pull it out then. I don't know whether they do that. And then you give it something, ashwagandha, ginseng, a steroid, and you see if that prolongs the time that the rat can swim until it gets exhausted. And if it prolongs the time, it is considered to have a stress protective effect, probably by working on that hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal axis. That's the way we assess these things. Well, happily, there's now some human trials as well. So uh, um, what do we do to assess in humans, Lise? 
Well, you know, and I just want to mention one other thing, which is that in addition to that, we also now know that the adaptogens improve on a, within our cells, improve the ability of our cells to make ATP and to protect itself against uh, various stressors like oxidative stress. <clears throat> so that's important because that, allow, that also explains why those rats could swim longer could, because they have more endurance, more physical endurance, all the way down to a cellular that, level. Mushrooms are made work by different mechanisms. I mean, these, uh, some of them have uh, polysaccharides, rich in polysaccharides, which we don't think of as being pharmacologically active compounds, but they're similar to cell wall components of bacteria and one thought is that they stimulate the immune system in the way that uh, foreign bacteria would. Right. Andy, yeah. since we're on the topic of mushrooms, maybe just name a few of your favorites, adaptogenic mushrooms. Well, one of the most famous is reishi. This is the hard, lacquered-looking uh, fungus that's been much esteemed in Chinese medicine for extending longevity. It has significant anti-inflammatory properties. It has immune-modulating properties, non-toxic. The anti-inflammatory properties are very significant, and I use them in patients with inflammatory disorders. Uh, lion's mane mushroom is one that has particular effects on uh, nerve function and cognition, now being intensively studied. There's so many of these. You know, as Lise mentioned earlier, a lot of these things cross the line between medications and foods. Uh, and in Eastern medicine, particularly, there's not much of a distinction between uh, drugs and foods that many ingredients in Chinese cuisine or Japanese cuisine are there as much for their perceived uh, medicinal properties as for textures or flavors. So shiitake mushrooms, which are common and people know them very well, also have antiviral properties, uh, anti-cancer protective properties, cholesterol lowering properties. Uh, you know, there's so many of these, and uh, there's a lot of good resources now on, on uh, medicinal mushrooms. Andy, would you recommend that if we could, we include these in our diet as opposed to taking them as dietary supplements? Definitely. And it's gotten easier to get uh, a lot of these mushrooms. You know, until relatively recently, there was only one species of mushroom that we in North America could get, the common button mushroom, uh, Agaricus brunescens, in its various forms. But now, in uh, many locations, you can find shiitake, maitake, enoki mushrooms, oyster mushrooms, you know, lion's mane. These are being cultivated more and more. A lot of them are very delicious. So if you can include them in the diet, that's great. You can also buy uh, dried mushrooms and reconstitute them or make tea out of them. And for many people, the, that liquid or, or solid extracts may be easier ways to take them. But yes, if you can eat mushrooms, I think they're good, good additions to the diet. Also, by the way, they're full of prebiotic substances that probably foster a healthy gut microbiome. So since these have this wonderful normalizing property, since they reset the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, should we be taking them indefinitely or should we start and stop? How safe are they? How long can you take them? You know, this depends on who you ask, but uh, since you're asking us, I will say that I think most of us would benefit from having an adaptogen or adaptogens in our daily life. And that's primarily because the, the degree and nature of stress that we each now experience in this world is pretty unheard of, and it's, it's really a daily assault to our neuroendocrine system. So I think adaptogens are generally beneficial. 
that being said, you know, your adaptogen is not necessarily going to be my adaptogen. So I think that there is uh, room for seeking some integrative practitioner advice to really find an adaptogen that would be best suited. And even that may change over time, depending on your circumstances. But I myself have been taking one or more adaptogens for 30 plus years, and uh, I would feel a little bit naked without it. You know, I think just given the environmental toxicity, the microbial in assault, the uh, day-to-day stress, the, you know, kind of weird lighting that we have in our world now, the lack of time in nature, all these things really make it hard for us to maintain our homeostasis. So my belief is yes, most people, if not everyone, would benefit from an adaptogen. And I think these can be used safely very long-term. There's no evidence of toxicity or loss of effect. Um, uh, in my, my own life, I eat, uh, I take uh, extracts of a uh, number of Asian mushrooms. Uh, I also eat garlic almost every day, and I would consider garlic an adaptation too. It has a wide range of, of properties um, that uh, I think improve health generally and increase resistance to infection. So, you know, that's, that's part of my routine. And I take astragalus, I say, periodically. If, uh, you know, during flu season or if I'm traveling or exposed, I, if I can remember what it's like to travel. <laughs> or, uh, you know, if I'm uh, exposed in, in areas where a respiratory infection might be likely. So we have a really relevant question uh, from Carol. She asked something that we get asked all the time about how you find a high-quality product. Hi, this is Carol, and I was just curious if there is a brand of uh, vitamin and mineral supplements that's recommended, uh, be it from a health food center or if the brands that claim they're pretty natural that you get at your grocery store pharmacy are good enough. Um, I've been trying to do as much research on this as I can, and I kind of hit a brick wall every time. Thank you. Bye-bye. You know, it's such an important question. And unfortunately, my answer is not entirely straightforward, but I'll make it as straightforward as possible. So first of all, I just want to say that many people are under the misconception that dietary supplements are unregulated. And that's not true. They are regulated. They have their own very unique set of regulations because they're not exactly pharmaceuticals and they're not foods. So they have a hybrid set of recommendations. And Although not universally true, most dietary supplements are on a scale of safety much safer than, say, a drug. So the regulations are based on the presumption of safety, and the regulations are oriented to identify problematic supplements and remove them from the marketplace, as opposed to, say, drugs, which are presumed unsafe until proven otherwise. So they have a lot of pre-market rigor they have to undergo before they're able to be sold. So that's, that creates some challenges because if I were to walk into a store to seek a certain, let's say, adaptogen or whatever supplement, I wouldn't necessarily know which abides by the regulations and which doesn't. So some ways that we can kind of determine that are some clues that are helpful. Number one is uh, it's very important to always buy supplements from the manufacturer itself. So not to use third-party sellers so that you can because on every dietary supplement brand, there's a phone number and you can call that company. You can ask them about their quality practices. And I encourage people to do that just once. Call the brand and say, do you have a quality manufacturing unit? 
you know, how do you test for your product quality? And just the openness to their answers will be a big clue. So that's a five minute investment of time, but it's worth it, I think. So buying from the brand itself. Number two is look for what are called third party verifications. So there are certain companies which will go in and make sure that the company is following the regulations for manufacturing. So some seals to look for are USP as well as something called NSF. Those are both organizations that certify the quality of the manufacturing and you can see those seals on the products. Um, So that's another thing. The third recommendation I would have is to find an integrative practitioner who's trained in the use of dietary supplements and is familiar with various brands and ask for their recommendations to direct so that they can direct you to the most appropriate brands. And then the final piece of advice I would have is that there is a website called consumerlabs.com and they independently test various products off the shelf for identity and for the presence of heavy metals as a marker of quality. It's not the only way that we determine quality. It's just an indicator of quality. And they'll publish all the companies and the products that have passed their test. So that's another thing that you can check is to just go to their website and see if the product you're looking for has met their specifications. And I would add that with regard to herbs and mushrooms, I would recommend that people avoid products coming from China. There's high likelihood of contamination with uh, heavy metals and, and other toxins. Now, wasn't that issue seen as well with uh, Ayurvedic products? Yes. So another thing we often see when we're trying to buy a product is uh, the claim natural. Does natural mean something on a dietary supplement product? It's not well-defined in the regulations. So I would say it's a very good marketing term, but not a very good educational term. So I would say no. Short answer, no. (laughs) Um, We have, as part of our listeners, a lot of health professionals. And there was a question from a health professional who said, I would love help in advising patients on dosing of supplements. I have great difficulty making the time to find, read, and digest really great papers. Would really appreciate some curation. And I want to say this is one of the things we do in our training programs. Uh, So we would invite health professionals to consider either our fellowship or one of our other training programs. But in addition, there's a really wonderful resource called Natural Medicine Comprehensive Database. Uh, Lise, can you tell people how to find that and what they might, why they might find that useful? Yeah, so Natural Medicine Comprehensive Database is available by uh, subscription online, and it is really a tremendous database that has been put together by pharmacists, and they essentially organize things in what's called a monograph format. So for any particular dietary supplement, ingredient, or herbal uh, product, or you know whatever the case might be, they will describe in a very succinct, easily readable way, current research, current usage, potential interaction issues with drugs, side effects that have been reported in clinical trials, and they will give you dosages that have been studied in clinical trials. So it is a good way to kind of get at kind of a glance, very in-depth information. Thank you. I like to ask all of our guests since we've been talking about health and best practices, uh, whether there is some vice that they human. So Lise, do you have a vice, uh, <laughs> something you struggle with? Just one vice? Uh, <laughs> well, at least you're limiting me to one, one vice. That's good. If you need to, you could tell us too. 
<laughs> no, this is not a confessional, so I'll limit it to one. Well, I guess I would say a couple of things come to mind, but I think maybe the vice that comes to mind uh, that might be worth discussion is that I have a tendency to be a bit of a workaholic. So that in turn makes me more sedentary. And I've done a lot of things to try to mitigate that. I have this little bike that I sit at and pedal at my desk and I try to take breaks, but I can be a little bit more sedentary because of that. And I also then shorten my time to do things which I believe are really important to my health, namely spending time in nature, relaxing, doing those kind of things. So that's something that, you know, is a work in progress. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you about that. I, I'm aware of it. Awareness is the first step, trying to do some things to mitigate that. But yeah, that's that's advice. Well, thank you. I think that's probably a common vice. And so we probably should um, let you get off of the podcast so that you can go off <laughs> and be in nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's, I was reading a book recently um, called The Finnish Way, because part of my heritage is uh, Swedish Finn is sort of part of my ethnicity. And in Finland, they have this concept called Sisu, which is really about this resilience that comes from a sense of determination and self-reliance. But there are very many components that build people's Sisu. And one of them is spending time in nature. Nature is a very important part of day-to-day -day life in Scandinavia. And just reading that book reminded me of, you know, the importance of that, just simple living, good, just simple quality food and balance, balance in all things. Thank you, Lee, so much for being on our show. It's been wonderful to have you as a guest and it's wonderful to have you as a faculty member at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Thank you so much. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim dot org slash podcast. Again, A-Z-C-I-M dot org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.